We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 today, so if you turn there, I want to read for us the first 11 verses. <clears throat> Still thinking about perseverance, and you'll see that as we go. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given us. You see, just at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. One of the great theologically rich passages of Romans and of the New Testament, Paul writes to his fellow Christians there, we have been justified through faith. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be justified? Sometimes preachers and teachers seem to think of being justified as having your ticket stamped to go to heaven. Some speak of it as though it were the entirety of salvation. And others, and this is particularly true in Catholic circles, seem to think of it as an infusion of Christ's moral uprightness into us. But justification has to do with status. I thought we were hearing through our speaker, sorry, which has happened before, but um, let me go back to what I just said because it's very important you get this. Justification has to do with status. We are justified and our status is changed from guilty to innocent. And that change of status makes a relationship with God possible and opens up an entirely new kind of life to us. If you've been here for a few years, you might remember Ali. Ali, the Iraqi refugee who spent the better part of a year with us at LCC. Ali had been imprisoned and tortured by Saddam's forces in the late 1990s. The business that his father owned in Baghdad, in the suburbs of Baghdad, was bombed. Uh, his family members killed. His sister seriously injured. When Ali went to prison, his fiancée's father ended their engagement, and she was married off to someone else. Ali eventually was released from prison, but without a fiancée and with the threat of further imprisonment and torture hanging over his head, he decided to flee the country. He crossed the border into Iran, where he was promptly arrested for illegal entry and put into jail. He had an uncle living there who got him out, and when he got out, he started walking for Afghanistan where he was promptly arrested again. 
After he was released there, he headed to Pakistan, where he was thrown into jail again. When he got out of jail there, he headed for India, and he was jailed there again as an illegal alien. He walked all the way from Iraq to India, which is almost 2,000 miles, and was in prison in every country he went into. But in India, something happened that changed everything. An official there handed Ali over to the UN who declared him a political refugee. In that moment, his status changed from illegal alien to protected refugee. That was the beginning of all kinds of good changes for Ali. He was eventually brought to the U.S. where he found work, found us, was introduced to Christ. When he lost his job here, he traveled to Maine where he met other political refugees, found a job, fell in love with a girl, was married. They had children. Oh, I spent a lot of time with Ali, and he was always bemoaning the fact that he had lost his fiance. Just couldn't get over it. Now he's in Maine. The last time I heard from him, he sent me pictures of his wife and his children with him. It was one blessing and one trial after another, but all this started when his status was changed. Before that, it couldn't have happened. When we put our faith in Christ, our status is changed. And from that moment, we have peace with God. Now, that's foundational. Until we're at peace with God, we can't be at peace with ourselves. And until we're at peace with ourselves, we can't be at peace with others. We'll see others as adversaries, as opponents, as threats. Even our spouses and parents and children. Peace with God brings peace within us and peace between us. And someday, according to God's own promise, it will bring peace around us. We have peace with God, Paul explains, because we've been justified by faith and not by some other means. See, if we were justified by religious rituals, for example, we would be left to wonder if we were religious enough and had performed the right rituals in the right way. If we were justified by the good deeds we'd done, we'd wonder if we'd done enough of them. If we were justified by our moral superiority, we'd wonder if the occasional sinful thought might not disqualify us. But when we're justified by faith, our performance <clears throat> drops out of the picture. It's not our efforts that secure our place with God, but his faithfulness. Faith in God's faithfulness secures me against past failures, against future uncertainty, and that gives me peace. That kind of faith is birthed and sustained by the faithfulness of God. A Christ follower's faith is not in his faith, nor is it in his actions. Don't put your faith in that wonderful day when you walked down the aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer. Don't put your faith in a conversion experience. Don't put your faith in faith. From time to time, I hear people say, Oh, I trust my faith. There used to be a, a woman who came to church here, and she would often say, oh, I trust my faith. And I always think, that's a mistake. Faith can't support itself. Now, imagine you've just remembered that tomorrow $1,000 will automatically be withdrawn from your bank account for a quarterly insurance payment or some such thing. And you know there's not enough money in that account to cover it. 
So you hurry to write and deposit a check to that account in the amount needed. Unfortunately, the check you're depositing is drawn against the account into which you're depositing it. In other words, you're withdrawing money out of the account in order to put money into the account, which gets you nowhere. That's what it's like when people put faith in faith. Faith can't stand on itself, but it will stand on the faithful, covenant-keeping, only begotten Son-sending, almighty, all-knowing God. Peace with God, Paul writes, still verse 1, comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the proof, or as the old theologians used to say, the surety that God loves us, forgives us, and accepts us as his own. And it's through him that we've gained access into this grace in which we stand. I've often heard people speak of grace as if it were the opposite of works. That's not the case. The opposite of grace is not works, it's merit. And the difference between standing in grace and standing in merit is like the difference between standing on the beach or standing in a bog, or stepping onto a rock or stepping into quicksand. Grace will hold us up. There's an openness, a freedom in grace. Grace allows us to become who we were always meant to be. Merit requires us to be something we never could be. Grace is a wide open world. Merit is a prison house. People who stand in grace naturally rejoice in hope. Literally, that verse reads, we have access into this grace in which we stand and boast upon the hope of the glory of God. That is a great place to be in. To stand and hope in the glory of God. That's not a place occupied by the nominally religious or by the tinker and tinkerer in spirituality. You know, don't you, that there's a world of difference between people who are cautiously religious, they believe, oh yeah, we believe, just don't want to go overboard in this religion thing, and people who hope in the glory of God. There's a world of difference. People who hope in the glory of God have gone overboard, and in so doing, they found that they can walk on water. It's a wonderful thing to hope in the glory of God. It's empowering. It lifts the spirit, clarifies the mind, strengthens the heart. It's altogether different from hoping in our own glory, which strains our nerves and clouds our minds and embitters our hearts. When it comes to God's glory, the thing you most often hear in church seems to be that God will not share his glory with another. And when you hear it, it sounds like a threat. The idea is, you better not get uppity. And you better be exceedingly careful not to take any credit because God will not share his glory with another. But the context of that remark, which is found repeatedly in Isaiah, is that God will not let idol worship mislead people into trusting false gods. The truth is that God happily shares his glory with certain others, his people. The Bible is full of that promise. We're going to look at that, at some of the wonderful verses that relay that promise to us on Wednesday night when we go into in-depth on, we go in-depth on Wednesday night into the Bible study, or the text that we look at on Sunday morning. So come to that. See, God is not like a proud man who is intent on preventing anyone else from getting any share in his glory. 
No, God intends to bring his people into his glory, and that transforms them. His glory is our joy. If we understand it at all, we will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It will become our passion. The person who hopes in God's glory, and perhaps this is the only person, that person is able to rejoice. And this, again, is really that word boast in suffering. The person who hopes in God's glory has caught a glimpse of the big picture. He knows the struggle will not last forever. He reminds himself that God is at work in everything and will turn everything, even his suffering, to his good. Now, the word translated suffering means something like trouble or tribulation. It is, in fact, the same words that's used of the great tribulation in Revelation chapter 2. It has the idea of being squeezed, of being under pressure. When I'm hoping in the glory of God, the world will appear to me in a different light. I'll know that this trouble that I'm in, no matter what it is or how it originated, even if it originated in my own foolishness, I will know that it cannot frustrate the plan of the great glorious God to whom I belong. I'll know that he will use even this to accomplish good for me and for others, that nothing can stop him. And that knowledge frees me to rejoice even in trouble. Yes, this thing has caused and is causing me pain, but the God I serve wins. He's using this and will use it for my good and for the good of others. That's happening even if I can't see it, even if I can't understand how he's going to do it. Now, do you see where this is leading? The person who's been justified by faith, as opposed to the person trying to be justified by some alternate means, stands in the grace of God, where he's free to think and act and cooperate with God's purposes. And in this secure and meaningful life, he rejoices in the hope of God's glory. He longs for God's glory, exults in it, longs to enter into it, that person is confident that his troubles, even the one he's in right at this moment, are working for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Not in spite of these troubles. These troubles are working that for him. That knowledge enables him to persevere in trusting God. He may not be able to see how things are going to work out, but that doesn't bother him too much. He knows that they will work out, though he realizes full well that might not happen in this lifetime. Perseverance is the hinge upon which the door of hope swings. Pull perseverance out of this sequence that we have in verses 2 and 3 and 4, and the door doesn't open. Without perseverance, suffering will not lead to the kind of character that leads to hope. It will instead produce resentment that leads to despair. The choice to persevere in trusting God is absolutely critical. If you're in the midst of trouble right now, I'm going to say that again to you. The choice to persevere in trusting God is absolutely critical. It's the hinge pin. The word the NIV translates character is a quality control word. It refers to something that has been tested 
and approved. This world's a proving ground. The believer in Jesus, who in times of trouble perseveres in trusting God, becomes tested and approved. That is a priceless thing, more valuable than silver or gold. But this is not a test like the math tests we used to take in school, which left us just as dumb as we were before we took them, only now the teacher knew it. This is more like, this test is more like basic training. When it's over, you're not the same person you were when it began. It changes you. It makes you stronger, wiser, more capable. People who persevere in trusting God through this testing process are more hopeful than they were when they entered the test. There's an escalating spiral effect. That hope enables them to endure the next trial with greater confidence in God, which further proves their character and makes them even more hopeful, which prepares them for the next trial that will come their way and on and on. Believers who've been through this process again and again hoping in God's glory, rejoicing in trouble, persevering in trust, developing proven character, and then becoming even more hopeful as a result. Those people are extraordinary people. If you know one, you are fortunate indeed. If you are one, what a blessing you are to the rest of us. And as odd as it may seem, to yourself as well. But what, the skeptic in us asks, what if it's all a cheat? What if, after persevering and trusting God through one trouble after another, it's all for nothing? Might we not be let down in the end? Paul knew that this thought would occur to some of his readers. And so he tells us in verse 5 that this hope does not disappoint us. The hope that grows in the person who goes through this faith-grace sequence of hope, perseverance, character, then back to hope, he knows it's no cheat. The reason we'll not be disappointed, Paul says, is that God pours out his love into our hearts. Listen. People were made to operate on love the way a car is made to operate on gasoline or a light bulb on electricity. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a steel worker, a stay-at-home mom or a soldier, you were designed to operate on love. The person who's living in this faith-grace loop that we have in these verses, hope, perseverance, character, more hope, perseverance, character, and so on, is increasingly capable of experiencing the power of God's love. As he goes through that cycle, he is able to take in more and more of God's love. He, in St. John's words, has known and has come to rely on the love that God has in us. He learns to trust God's love for him, in him, and through him. He learns to trust it. He counts on it. In these verses, there are two ways that God communicates his love for us. The first is through the spiritual connection that he establishes with us, his spirit to our spirit. Paul says he poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. As soon as a person's status changes, okay, remember that status change in justification? As soon as a person's status is changed, 
and he's justified by faith, God is able to connect to him in a way that didn't exist before. His great spirit forms a connection to our small spirits. As the cycle of verses 3 and 4 plays out and is repeated in our lives, God's love can flow through that spiritual connection he's established, that is, through his Holy Spirit, in an ever-increasing measure. A person who's been through this cycle many times comes to live in love and will rarely go out of it. It's where he lives. I don't say that I'm there yet, but I've seen it. I know it's possible. God's spirit is the spirit of love. But don't think of that love as all sentiment and feeling. It's also power and ability. So Paul writes to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The spirit of love is the spirit of power, and vice versa. When we turn to God and trust in his son, Jesus God gives us his spirit. He establishes a connection with us through which his life enters and sustains us. But establishing that connection is just the beginning. The volume of life and love through that connection increases as we repeat the cycle of verses 3 and 4. As does our certainty of God's love and our productivity in his kingdom. Now I said there are two ways in these verses that we see God communicating love to us. By his spirit that he's given us, that's verse 5. And by his son who died for us, that's verses 6 through 11. But especially verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The son for us and the spirit in us communicate God's love to us. All right, we've looked at the faith and grace sequence that leads to hope and troubles, to perseverance and proven character. What a great thing that is. We've seen that the sequence can become a cycle, an escalating cycle, carrying us more and more into the love of God. But my question for you this morning is, where are you in this sequence? Perhaps you haven't started it yet. Maybe you're on the threshold of faith, but you've not yet been justified by faith in the faithful, covenant-keeping, only-begotten, son-sending God. Maybe you're not quite sure how to begin. Or maybe you're a little afraid of what might happen. I mean, all this talk of perseverance and trouble doesn't appeal to you. But look, you're going to have trouble anyway whether you trust in God or not. But if you trust in him and confess Jesus as your Lord, you will not go through these troubles alone. So step over the threshold. Today's your day. Perhaps you have stepped over the threshold and are on your first go-round in the hope of the glory of God. Perhaps you've reached the trouble stage of this sequence. You're being squeezed and it hurts. The pressure's on. But don't give up and step out of the cycle. 
If you do, a different cycle starts. It's a cycle of failing to persevere, of not developing that tested and approved character, of losing hope so that you're less likely to persevere next time, develop less character, and so on. I urge you to persevere right now and trust in God. Your character will be proven, and not just to God, he already knows, but to yourself. You will gain confidence in God's grace. You will know from experience that he's trustworthy. You will know and learn to rely on the love God has in us. Wherever you are right now, whether on the threshold of faith or in between the rock and the hard place of trouble, take the next step. Now I want to leave you with an eightfold statement of choice that Carol Kent composed, and I think is fitting for people who persevere, that is, for the men and women and children who belong to Jesus. Let me read it to you. When despair tries to take me under, I choose life. When I wonder what God could possibly be thinking, I choose trust. When I desperately want relief from unrelenting reality, I choose perseverance. When I feel oppressed by my disappointment and sorrow, I choose gratitude. When I want to keep my feelings to myself, I choose vulnerability. When nothing goes according to my plan, I choose relinquishment. When I want to point the finger, I choose forgiveness. When I want to give up, I choose purposeful action. If you're ready to persevere, I wonder if you'll make those choices too. I'm going to give you the chance to do that. We're going to read that again. And I'm going to read the first part of each one of those statements. And if you're ready to make those choices, would you... Join me in reading the second part. Would you put those on the screen, please? When despair tries to take me under, I choose life. When I wonder what God could possibly be thinking, I choose trust. When I desperately want relief from unrelenting reality, I choose perseverance. When I feel oppressed by my disappointment and sorrow, I choose gratitude. When I want to keep my feelings to myself, I choose vulnerability. When nothing goes according to my plan, I choose relinquishment. When I want to point the finger, I choose forgiveness. When I want to give up, I choose purposeful action. Oh God, you hear our choice. Now empower it with your grace. And I pray that you'll make clear to us what the next step is for us as individuals so that we can trust you and step out and stand on grace. In the name of your good son, Jesus, amen.